Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast on ProSound Web, sponsored by Shure. My name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the technical editor of ProSound Web and Live Sound International. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Kyle Churnside. I'm Kyle Churnside. I'm just kind of hanging out with Michael Lawrence. And uh, I don't really do much anymore. Make some shows, um, hang out, talk about audio. What else do I do? Work at a church sometimes. Um, I like tacos as well. You did it. Three episodes in a row. We got back to the food. It's crazy. You did it like in record time this it's week, a, man. It, it's kind of amazing <laughs> that we we always have our podcast either right before I ate or right after because <laughs> all I can think about is food. Well, you, you eat all the time, so it's really not that amazing, is it? I know. It is. I do eat all the time. So let's get into some, some fun stuff today. Basically, from, from the beginning to where you want to get, um, from education to mixing and plugins. Uh, I think we got a pretty good lineup today. I know it's just you and I, but I still find ourselves relevant and interesting, even though I'm aging, right? Aging, but still relevant. I mean, that's the name of the game for you, Kyle. So, you know, someday I will be in your position. I'm just joking. Uh, so. it, it takes one six pack of Ensure. <laughs> A day in a Centrum Silver Vitamin, but I make it. I make it through the day. <laughs> Usually, doors open around my bedtime. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're you, have you taken a nap in the line array covers in a truck though? Because I have the big pile of, of soft cases. Of course, I've done there it. In I I used to tour with the XL4, so I had a huge case that I could sit right behind me and pile up as many. Sub covers as I could. I've definitely <laughs> definitely had people call me to ask if there's any type of hammock they could buy to uh, put underneath the stage and rig underneath the stage to sleep. I, I think engineers, techs, roadies, whatever you want to call us, we've all found a way to to take a nap at a show site once or maybe a bunch. You know what? Actually, that's a great uh, poll question for this week. Uh, tell us your, your on-the-job nap stories or nap arrangements. Our, our email address is signal2noisepodcast at gmail.com. And let us, know, let us know your wackiest nap arrangements. I, I know that there's a, a Sleeping Roadies um, Facebook page, and it's amazing because 95% of the time it's my friend Babyface. Uh, he used to mix at the Orlando House of Blues, and he, he goes out randomly with a bunch of bands. But that dude can sleep anywhere, so... Shout out to Babyface, <laughs> or Baby Food, my fault, Baby Food. Um, he, he's hilarious. That dude could sleep absolutely anywhere. I've seen him sleep on a Warp Tour stage, and it was like 98 degrees out, barreling sun, uh, hot water out of a can style. He was doing it. I got to a, I did a little rock festival a couple months ago, and when we came back to the site the second day, there was a dude sleeping on the stage, and he was not, he was not supposed to be on the stage. He just snuck on overnight, I guess so. Uh, and my A2 said, should we wake him up? I said, he'll wake up when the pink noise starts. Don't worry about it. So <laughs> start, yep. start spraying those wedges extra loud today for him. Yep. Hashtag van life. <laughs> so, uh, seeing as it's back to school time, what we thought we'd go through this week is we're going to kind of go through um, a lot of the questions that we get from people that are younger in audio, starting to come up in their careers, or looking at starting careers, or forwarding their careers in audio. And we're going to start with, 
you know, the old question of should I go to should I go to school for this? How did you learn? Did you learn on the job? Did you learn from books? We're going to talk about education in audio. And then we're going to talk about how to get gigs, how to get started getting gigs. And then once you get the gigs, we're going to talk about mixing and, and the tools that we use when we're mixing and what we're doing on the consoles and plugins and all that stuff. So uh, to start, uh, Kyle, why don't you start with your background in audio and your education and how you learned what you, what you know? Background actually started before the education started. So um, when I was 15, uh, of course, everyone's dream is to be in a band and make it big. So uh, as a 15-year-old punk rock kid in St. Louis, Missouri, um, started playing shows and writing songs. And I noticed that the drummer needed to buy his drums and the guitar player needed to buy a guitar. So Naturally, singer needs to buy a PA. So um, instead Were you of the singing, singer? yeah, unfortunately, can't you tell from my luxurious voice? <laughs> we gotta get a picture. We gotta get a picture for the website, man. That's great. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you a couple. <laughs> They're pretty funny. When I had hair and my hair still had color, um, so I kind of started Frankensteining uh, a PA together when I was fifteen, which kind of made my parents mad because um, obviously you're supposed to be saving for a car. And, um, but I needed something to put my PA in. So dad let me use the minivan down the road. I figured out, Hey, I can go rent my PA to my friend's band for the weekend and sit there and do sound and make just as much money or more money doing their show than I was going out and playing my own gigs. So that kind of perpetuated itself. And then I started looking into school, of course, cause you got to, at the time I was coming up, it was kind of like to appease the parents, you know, to show that I was moving forward in my education. But of course, I was going to pursue audio. So um, I applied at Webster University here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, they had an audio program and it was more than just broadcast at the time. Um, you got to remember, this was early 90s, late 80s. So uh, audio mixing wasn't a real legitimate job back then unless you work for a broadcast style company like a tv or radio or whatever it was or a foley artist or theater there wasn't really a live or even divulging into studio programs yet so when i took classes at webster i kind of mixed them in with um, music theory and psychology and sociology because i had to and it was more fun um, than math classes, but uh, I believe the music theory classes and ear training stuff was super beneficial to my career because I definitely used a lot of those things from being in a band, doing my own system when I was a kid, and then going to school for broadcast and recording. Um, the ear training and the music theory actually helped me just as much as all that other stuff really did. Um, education at the time wasn't like now where you can find live audio engineering classes, even trade schools such as like Full Sail or the Conservatory where uh, you can actually focus on being a producer or a live engineer or a studio engineer. And um, I, I, I basically just try to perpetuate my gig. When I wasn't in school, I was working at a local venue. When I wasn't working at a local venue, I was playing in a local metal or punk rock band. So I was just kind of drowning myself in the music portion of it, but I was taking away more of the system engineering and mixing um, 
technician kind of portion of it for my own education. So I think uh, I think that's a common thread. You know, a lot of us, uh, very few of us got into this because we really love diffusers, you know. <laughs> I mean, I oh, think, for sure. I think that... Uh, I or think, cutting tape. Well, yes. And, and so I think... I think it's very organic to end up in audio because you love music and, and you want to perform music. And there's the, the joke about, you know, the engineer being a failed musician. But I think, um, you know, it's, it's another form of, of that artistic musical expression. And, you know, my, my story is very similar. I, I uh, in seventh grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, I would be in the school auditorium, you know, messing around. And I think I ran lights for the talent show or something like that when I was 14. And uh, I was left unattended with... Uh, you know the audio equipment there, <laughs> and so then That's I was hooked. The best part, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like you know it was all busted up and terrible, so it wasn't you know I wasn't going to get in trouble for breaking it because it was pretty much non-functional to begin with. And so um, there's something went, about making things loud that just gives you this weird power trip, right? I mean, let's just be honest, like turning I mean, things very, up and you being like in control tribal. of it. You know, yeah, it's it is. Very, like I'm louder than you, so you know. <laughs> I think I think there's some roots there that go back, but I think, you know, after a year or two of that, the people that uh, were the technicians in in the school district, kind of were like, "Who's this kid? Who's this nerd?" And they started letting me do stuff and ask questions, and that was huge. You know, being able to ask questions and get answers. Um, a lot of people don't want to be bothered when they're working and I totally respect that. But, you know, I look back and think, what if these people weren't answering all my questions? Uh, what would I be doing today? Um, and what's crazy is I still work with those people. Uh, I still, uh, do a lot of gigs with the, with the, the guy who was the technical director of the school auditorium at that time. He's got a freelance company now. I, I work with him quite a bit and you know, we're still very good friends. And so, um, you know, I was I was welcomed with open arms, basically, uh, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, same as you, I was involved in a band in high school, and you know, we thought that was the way to be cool. And uh, I I didn't play guitar, but uh, the band needed a guitar player, so I said, I guess I'll get a guitar. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got a guitar, and and off it went. And uh, I did end end up studying music uh, in Boston after I, I graduated high school. Um, and I did not study audio there. And so a lot of people say, oh, well, you went to school for this. No, I didn't. I went to school for music. Um, and obviously, you know, you're studying a little bit of recording and you're studying a little bit of mixing and stuff like that. But I, the vast majority of the stuff that I learned was hands-on or reading books, reading magazines, uh, and asking people. And so I think what both of us can contribute to this conversation is there's a real, uh, you know, multifaceted approach here where you can learn a lot from a program. You can learn a lot. I think apprenticeships are still really important. You know, uh, I think sure. finding a local production company or a local venue or your community theater and just saying, Hey, I'm interested in this. And it's about getting that hands on time because it's very important to, you know, whether it's through a book or a magazine or, or a classroom situation to learn the fundamentals and the foundations and the theory behind what, what we're doing and to have that professional vocabulary. And it's just as important to have the hands on stuff and, coil cables and and to try to you know fix things when they break and to get it wrong a couple of times and to go in there and get your hands dirty and i think those are both very important elements for uh, sure so and, I, and and now instead of universities i mean there's trade schools so you can really go and focus now like uh i've been to blackbird academy a couple times i mean mark rubel is one of my favorite dudes on the planet and the program that they have down there is amazing there's a EI Institute here in St. Louis, which uh, Nellie 
um, helped open. They don't really touch on live audio fundamentals too much, but they have recording stuff, producing, how to make beats. Um, conservatory in Arizona is brilliant. Uh, it, it's a lot more available now than it was because I think uh, the nerds actually changed it. You know, we we had to legitimize the job somehow, and it was through education. Now it's. Uh, an actual thing, you know, I was really amazed when alternative press, uh, started doing articles on roadies, you know, that's what we were, you, you know, everyone's like, Oh, you just hand that guy a guitar. No, like a lot of those dudes are actual guitar mechanics almost, you know, um, it's a craft. And then they started doing engineers and, uh, trade magazines started doing exposés on, engineers as well and and sound mixers and it's really opened up the program a, a ton and most of us if you read it are like you michael we all have this weird musical background and i think there's also been a nice shift in the tech side of things and that really dovetails nicely because it used to be literally about how many of these big heavy speaker cabins can we stack up? And so the idea of a roadie being, you know, the, the if the, the the sort of the caricature of the big strong ponytailed guy that just moves stuff around, um, has really become, you know, it's less about about sheer muscle now, and it's it's very much about uh, being a technician and understanding it at a technical level what's going on. Think about setting up a Dante network or programming a lighting board. Um, the intellectual parts of this are really blossoming, and as our technology continues to move forward, um, you know, so, so I think that's a, we're at a really great time where it, it's no longer we're going to go hire the biggest, strongest guys we can find. It's, it's now about who has the skill, and that really levels the playing field a lot to anyone. I mean, I, I'm a little, little scrawny dude. I would, never, I would not have been able to do roadie work in the 70s. You know, I just wasn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have made the cut. And so we're at a great time where if you're interested in this stuff and you study this stuff and you learn these skills, um, you're going to find a home in this field. Yeah, and you can definitely email us too. Um, Michael and I would be glad to help out with anyone, you know, wanting to ask further questions about education or what to do uh, or which direction to go. Um, but I think the one thing that we'll both answer is is you have to be constant in it. You know, you, there, there's a point in your career when you just can't pick and choose. Um, you really have to take everything you got. If it is just pushing cases, you're still around it for the day. And I used to do that too. Even when I was out on tour with bands, I'd come home and if I got called for a stagehand call, I would still go because one, I was going to run into their front of house guy, their monitor guy, some guys that work on stage and they were going to see my face, maybe know my name. And that all plays a part as well. You know, it's not always that you're going to be the front of house mixer from uh, every gig you get until you put yourself out there and just kind of be a constant in it. So getting your job at the local church, getting your job at the local venue, getting your job with the local production company, um, it's all opportunities to reach that next stage, which is gigs all the time and like perpetuating into an actual career. And I think, I think the constant uh, is such an important idea. You know, uh, one of my first big shows, I was nobody. I was the guy pulling the feeder under the stage and hitting my head on the you know, on the bottom of the you know the SL two sixty. And um, uh, and I I will occasionally go out and like you said, if if there's a you know a company that I work with, they need a couple hands for a show and they don't need an audio person, they don't need a system tech, they don't need a mixer, they just need a couple people to go and 
and help out. I will sometimes go and, uh, you know, last time I did that, I think I ended up hanging a, a, a video wall. And I, I'm not a video person. You know, I don't, I don't know anything about that tech. And so you're very quickly way out of your comfort zone and doing something that you don't know anything about. And I think that's really important. I think it's really important to have that perspective on the production and say, wow, as much as I've been able to learn about audio, I know nothing about video or or I'm learning something about lighting today that I didn't realize. Or, you know, I got to help the ground rigger today. And so I learned about how to set that up. And so these just really broaden the horizons of what you know. They make you more valuable on the job site. They make you, uh, I think, much more appreciative of what's going into the production. And I think it's a lot easier to solve a lot of the, the problems that come up. And the other thing I'll say about being constant is the education uh, side of it should be constant as well. I mean, I I rarely go to bed without reading at least a couple paragraphs out of a book. Um, I think a great example is like the Master Handbook of Acoustics. It's a $30 book. And, uh, you know, most libraries I've found, most libraries actually have that book. So why not go grab that book and spend a couple afternoons leafing through it? And there's so much valuable knowledge there. And it's in a $30 book. And so one of the cool things about the modern era is this stuff, it's not about gatekeeping anymore. I mean, a lot of this information is so easy to find. Something like Bob McCarthy's book about optimizing PA systems. If you really read that book and you, you internalize that book, um, you're going to just be really, really well versed in these techniques and ideas. And, and, and so it only takes, you know, just a little bit of uh, stick to a little bit of saying, yeah, I'm going to sit down and spend 20 minutes a day studying this. And the gains are incredible. Yeah, for sure. I, I read a couple books a night, too. It's usually around 9 o'clock. Um, my last one was Amelia Bedelia goes to <laughs> school. And um, what's the other one that she's super into right now? Oh, it's like weird bedtime stories. But, yeah, uh, the other things that I've been doing is a lot of online research. And just from being out of the touring game, um, reading this stuff on ProSound Web. I mean, the guys that are contributing to this thing are amazing. Like, I want to hang out with Bob McCarthy. Like, I can't wait to actually sit down with that guy and just listen to him at some point. I have questions, but it's just sitting and listening to him, reading a lot of the articles there. Like um, you said, exposing yourself. Online resources for audio are becoming a lot more prevalent at especially in church audio, you know, um, yep. this is, this is how people are getting their information now with, uh, Samantha doing, uh, the church university stuff and it's just there, man. It's really cool that everyone can come together. Even the last episode with Bruce, like listening to him speak about coming from, you know, the days of analog into now he's, you know, challenging himself with an LV one, like that's a huge jump. Like uh, when I was coming up, there was a lot of engineers that wouldn't make the switch from analog to digital. And now it's just a thing that happens because there's information, there's support, there's education. Um, most console manufacturers, most speaker manufacturers all have training courses all across the, the yeah. nation as yep. well as like rational with a uh, smart training. Right. Um, it, it's all out there, and it, it's money well spent at the end of the day. Some of those things are kind of pricey, but once you get there and get set through the class, think about who you're going to be sitting next to you, Michael. That's probably one of the coolest things. Like If you take a master class of anything, think about who's going to be on the thing next to you doing the thing, and think about your conversations at break time with those other class people that are in that master class. Like 
there's huge learning possibilities outside of the classroom from just the people that attend these things. Oh, absolutely. And that that's one of my, my favorite things about uh, when I am down at, at the rational offices and they've got class going on and these people come in and, you know, sit through the class. Um, I've seen Jamie give the class, you know, a number of times at this point. But what, what I, why I still like to be in the room is because the comments that come up, you know, everyone has their own path through audio. And so people bring a lot of different perspectives to that class and to the table there. And the stuff that people come up with will sometimes make me go, huh, I never thought of that before. And so um, that's a really valuable and important experience for me. And it's particularly the advanced classes when you've got a bunch of people that have been out there doing it for a long time and they're, they're sort of coming together and they're doing these really advanced little workshop topics. And so um, the, the, the varying backgrounds, you know, you hear these really interesting ideas and then they, they give you pause and then I'll go home and think about it and say, well, that's a really interesting thing. I really hadn't considered that before and I'm going to try that. And that that's great. So just you know, surrounding yourself with with peers, um, and so I think that ties into our next point, which is you know, getting gigs, keeping gigs, moving forward professionally. Um, you know, I started like I said, just at the local production company, helping out in the shop, and sometimes it's sorting cables or soldering cables, and sometimes it's you know, I mean, boring stuff like, hey, here's 400 XLR cables, and we need them to be color coded with electrical tape by length. You know what I mean? That's not exciting <laughs> but but just being in the shop and being around the people doing the work and being around the gear um being able to go up to a console and spend some time on the console being able to spend some time seeing how a, a power distro goes together learning how to pack a truck hearing the you know the language looking at the advancing documents i mean that, that's just that's the best place you can be and you know a lot of companies that i know would be happy to take someone on as an intern or as some summer help or just to have an extra set of hands around the shop and so i think that's a, a great first step for a lot of people is to just go down to your local shop and just say hey i'm really interested in this can i help yeah and those classes that you could take on the external might even get you paid a little bit more um i know a lot of people that got certifications in certain things because they knew their local shop had those items and when they went in to sit with the owner or whoever was doing the interview process, they brought up the point that they had certification in a certain speaker, a certain console, or even a, a certain platform that that um, company's using. And that, that might even get you paid a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. And so I think, you know, a great example is something like Dante certification. Anybody can do Dante certification. It does not cost any money. It only requires for you to sit at your computer and and put on some headphones and take some notes and you can do it in a couple hours you can come out and say i have a dante certification or a lot of the trade shows and audio uh trade events that are happening the audinate people will be there and you can go to the booth and uh get get a certification that week and so uh that's something that doesn't really require much investment of money at all and 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 a relatively small investment of time and like you said it really score you some big bonus points with a uh, potential employer especially if they're working with a technology, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, I run my own audio company and I would certainly welcome if I'm going to have a, a, a pair of hands there to help me out. I definitely do want somebody who will be able to troubleshoot the system when it goes down. So if you, if you know the DSP that I use, if you know Dante, if you know the consoles that I use, you're going to be more valued to me. And that's a great way to make more money. For sure. Love it, man. Um, getting gigs, it, 
And you referred me, a couple of your friends are just people that you had met along the line to kind of talk these people through whether they were doing the right thing, whether they were asking the right questions. And the one that I hear a lot is, I want to work for so-and-so. And yeah, that's a reach, you know, because there's not many of us who are mixers or system techs that actually get to pick the artists that we're working for. Um, it's really hard. Uh it's kind of luck of the draw. I mean, I kind of have a laundry list of artists that I work for, and I and I love them all. Well, most of them, ninety eight percent. But um, I never asked to mix any of that stuff. You know, um, it was just one of the things that fell into my lap. So, being around, being a constant, um, not turning down gigs because you're not think you're getting paid enough. You know, there can be a lot more things that happen at that show besides what you got paid, you know, um, by being someone who pushed a cabinet, you just might be in the right place at the right time. A perfect example. Um, I was building stage in Yuma, Arizona in July, uh, for country thunder in a desert parking lot. It was probably about 130 degrees, so you know how you got to get under and push it up to pull it back down onto the thing so it can seat, then you can go up with the, the coffin key and lock them in. Well, I had burn marks across my back from the aluminum because it was so hot. Like, literally, you couldn't touch anything without getting scalded. So um, I'm outside. It was too... Two days, 12-hour days, you know, pretty much dust to dawn, a little bit after to get these stages set up. And I got a call from one of my friends, and uh, I say friends. He was a kid who came into a club I worked in Springfield, Missouri, wanted to learn how to do sound. I helped him out. I gave him 25 bucks a night. That kid was there every day. Like every time there was a show, anytime the, the place was closed, we we worked together. I showed him what I knew. Um, and five years later, he calls me and says, hey, man, I'm out with so-and-so. Um, I got a call for this other gig. I can't take it. Do you want it? And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm in the middle of Yuma dying here. You know, what is this thing? And he says, oh, it's just this crappy band from Chicago. It's They're called Fall Out Boy. And I was like, no, I'm not doing some crappy punk rock band from Chicago. And uh, he was like, I, I think you better take this one, dude. So that, that's how I ended up getting Fall Out Boy was just through word of mouth. And like I said, working in the middle of Yuma, things happen at the weirdest time. Like, and, a, and a lot of that's happened, you know, uh, from pushing cases. Hey, man, do you want to come back and, and mix our next show? Or, hey, can you mix the first band because I got to go to the bus? Or, hey, our front of house guy is sick. Do you want to step in for a bit? Like, I've got to mix some pretty sick shows just from showing up. Um, one of my old bosses at Midas said something that resonated throughout my career, and that's, uh, you can't teach give a shit. And I think if you just show up, that you're, you're half the battle is won, you know? Um, and that's where eagerness and questions and answers and just being present helps out in getting these next shows that are going to perpetuate your career. Well, I love that. I love that idea. And I, you know, I've written about something similar and, and some of our other contributors have written about something similar. And to me, it's this idea that I, I refer to as the McCartney check. Um, because my, my dream gig is Paul McCartney. You know, I grew up 
very, very young watching Paul McCartney on TV. And so I think a lot of my love for music and for audio and for shows can be traced back to that. So, you know, that's very important to me. And so I'm always like, wow, how great would it be to work on, on the Paul McCartney show? And what I've realized is if you think about the level of care you would take working for your dream gig, whoever that is, you know, and it's good to kind of carry that in your mind um, and think about how neatly you would run your cables and how carefully you would set up your console and how neat and orderly your documentation would be and all the things that you would make sure you're doing to the best of your ability because this is the gig that you always wanted and you really want to do a good job. And then if you try to apply that to every gig you work regardless of how terrible the gig is or how small or how little you're getting paid. And it very quickly becomes about, well, these are the professional standards to which I hold myself. And I'm not doing it this way because of the paycheck. I'm doing it this way because this is the way I choose to work. This is the way I choose to conduct myself. And what's amazing is how quickly that catches on and how people see that you're doing a good job or that you're taking the professional care with the work and uh, even when the gig doesn't go well, uh, people can really spot a person who is trying hard to make it work, even if, you know, things don't work or it's not, a, it's, sometimes it's not into your control, but saying, hey, we had this guy come in and he, he, he showed up and he was on the ball and we didn't have to ask him for anything and he, he was polite and he was on time. Um, just that feedback will put you in a very high percentile in this field. And so what I've found is don't wait till you get your dream gig to start acting like you're working your dream gig. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah, it definitely goes along with the whole theory. Um, working in Springfield, Missouri at a crappy sea market club that's a stop between St. Louis and Kansas City or Lawrence and uh, the sound engineer for the headliner got really wasted, failed miserably. Um, and the band literally asked me after the set what I was doing. And I, <laughs> I packed a bag and... He packed his, he got on a Greyhound, and I got on the bus. So it's all about attitude, and, and that's how it started is, like, they saw me the last two times through. I was super nice. I did everything that I could. And like you said, I, it's almost like that meme where there's the two couples laying in bed and the one bubble above their head is, oh, he's thinking about the other person, and then the bubble above your head is, dang, I could totally make that snare drum sound really good. <laughs> yeah, I like the one, the wife's in the doorway and she says, are you coming to bed soon, honey? And he says the snare drum sounds like crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like the Clippy. I usually bring back Clippy. You remember Clippy, the little guy that gave information at the bottom of your PC? Yeah, you would, he would tap on your screen. Yeah, the yeah, paperclip uh, guy, yeah. Clippy pops up and it says, hey, man, it's not 1980. Turn down the reverb. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, it, uh, a related thing that I think we should bring up here it, that, that you know, I've run into is, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a couple aspects. One, just read the rider. I mean, reading that, like, there's, there's times when I'll say, hey, I read your rider and I don't exactly understand what you mean by this certain microphone that you're asking for or the way, that, you know, I'm not really clear on that. And an um, amazing amount of time, the the management or the artist will say, oh, yeah, that's a typo. That's not supposed to be there. And it's been there for months, and no one noticed it because no one actually read the rider. And so just when, you you know, having read through whatever you got, even if it's old, you know, that, that really sets the tone in a positive way when, when the people get there. And you, that shows, hey, you know, I, I, I care about this. I'm trying to make it work. Um, and I think the issue that I ran into when I was – my first tour, I was 18, um, 18 and 19, and and, and – 
the trouble that I ran into is that I was young and I looked even younger than I was. And so you walk into the venue and the house, the house person says, where's the, where's the road manager? Who the hell are you? And I'm like, no, I'm the sound guy. And they're like, no, where's your dad? You know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> and, and there's an immediate credibility problem, um, that, that you, you, you know, unfortunately we still live in a world where you're judged sometimes based on your appearance. And so I think you can minimize that by, by, you know, presenting well and, uh, printing out the documents, having them in your hand when you walk in, and and being really super polite and respectful to everybody, and being really prepared. You're going to perpetuate that if you show up and you're not prepared, or if you're disoriented, or if you're rude, or if you forgot something. That's going to make those stereotypes worse. So I think there's a lot you can do to sort of you know kind of chip away at that stuff. And and of course the best way to do it is to get results because we played a club. Um, I won't say where as a as a well known club. And the house engineer, you know, took one look at me when I got out of the van and, and had decided already that, you know, today was going to suck and I ain't talking to this kid. And and just kind of dragged me through the mud for the entire load in and check and all that stuff. And about, you know, my band comes up, uh, show starts, the band comes up. Within 30 seconds, he's looking over my shoulder at the board to see what I'm doing. Do you and know what to stop that? How Face- do you stop that? Facial tattoos or possibly neck tattoos. <laughs> Just kidding. That's I, right, kids. They're listening out there. They'll go get a face tattoo and then say, Kyle told you to do it. And anywhere that you can be visible. One, one of my friends, uh, Jenny Douglas, she, she's awesome, by the way. When, when she was a kid, she um, lived in Springfield, Missouri and, and sold merch for all the bands that came through. And uh, I... I Moved away from Springfield and, and lived in Scottsdale, and uh, I heard she started doing sound, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's so awesome!" Like a lot of those kids that worked at that venue that I worked at in Springfield were out doing the thing, like they were learning how to be sound mixers, they were t- tour managing, like, and Jenny Douglas was one of them. And um, I was in LA for a show. And I heard that Newfound Glory, I think it was Newfound Glory, was playing at the Troubadour. And one of my friends was working there. And he was like, hey, man, why don't you come down? I was like, yeah, totally. And I get there. And Jenny's running sound and tour managing Newfound Glory. And I was like, awesome. So I walked up behind her. And I noticed that she had tattooed her like neck to her toes. Like This was this young sweet girl who was the merch person in springfield missouri has now became this roughneck tour manager and she is so good like uh, i love seeing her out there do it but yeah that that was my reason for the neck tattoo and the and the, <laughs> well but, hey, how about this you've you've done some tour management so if you hear from a young person in audio who says hey my goal is is to get on tour i really want to tour you know, be uh, touring for a house, or I really want to be a touring monitor engineer, or, or what have you. Uh, what What would your advice be to a person like that? Um, like a, just the same um, consistency. Like uh, it, it seems to perpetuate itself. Once you get that first tour, the second tour will fall in line. The third tour will fall in line, and and that's almost like you said about learning the lingo just from being around. You'll see how the other crew people interact and you can see towards the end of the tour that everyone's hustling for the next gig, you know, unless there's already signed something lined up for the band that you're with to go to Europe or um, if they're going to go in the studio record, then you'll see people hustling. And if you've made friends and if you've done the thing, um, 
it'll kind of perpetuate itself. One of the guitar techs will be like, hey, man, I'm going to do so-and-so. Here, call their tour manager because I know their front of house person is out doing something else. Or, But getting that initial thing, um, it's weird now because I, I think the industry is kind of going to take a hit because Warp Tour is gone. And Warp Tour gave the opportunity to hundreds of kids that were hungry to go tour and seriously i think 70 percent or more of those kids that are on warp tour either went back to warp tour the next year with another band or they got with a band that kind of escalated and are still touring like i don't know what's going to happen like uh, that thing was perpetuating young people moving into the industry through touring um like I know people that were out building fences or are working for Rat Sound that are now f- front of house or monitors for bands that did really well on Warp Tour ten years ago. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, I think so. it goes back to I think it goes back to the Rolodex. You know, whenever I meet anyone, they give me a card, even if it's someone from a company that I will probably never deal with and may never hear from again. I'll always send them a send them a note. You know, the next week, hey, it's nice to meet you. You know, keep in touch. That's it, two sentences. And, and the thing that I found is if you're sort of on the top of the mental pile, um, you're more likely to get the call. And it, it, so if you think about – when I think about when, when I get a call for a gig I can't make and I'm often asked, well, can you recommend someone? You're very likely to recommend someone you just dealt with. Yeah. And so keeping yourself just you know by touching bases with people, and I think like LinkedIn is a great tool, tool for that if you use Facebook to network with people. Um, just being in touch with people, and I'll have friends in the industry that I that I rarely see because they're off someplace crazy, and I'll just I'll just send them a note and say, "Hey, what are you up to? What's going on? Tell me about your life." And and it's just a couple sentences to keep in touch, and also I think that kind of helps both ways when when they need somebody or when you need somebody. Um, and so let's move from there now into our final topic for the day, which is now actually mixing and we wanted to talk a lot about plugins uh, and i had one comment that i did talking about my first tour has reminded me um i always strive for less equals more and uh one of the things i found on a tour is that i often didn't have as much time as i wanted to have and that's something that you know it never seems to change regardless of your your level of success or the size of the event that you're working on it always seems like you could use an extra 10 minutes <laughs> so so i think uh i took over for a, another engineer halfway through a band's tour and um when i got the input list it was something like 19 inputs and i immediately shaved it down to like 11 um and what I found is, you know, if, if it's, you know, for example, a hip-hop act, which I was working with, um, it's all about that vocal. People want to hear that, the, the vocal. They want to hear the lyrics. They want to hear every single word. And if we have 20 minutes to sound check and if I need to spend 16 on the vocal, I'm going to do that. And if I don't get to Tom 3, I don't get to Tom 3. You know, that's something that I'll dial in during the show or not at all. Um, no one's going to ask for a refund because the Tom mic wasn't working. But if they can't hear the vocal, uh, they're going to be mad. And so I said, if I don't need it, I'm not doing it. And I, I stripped everything down, and that really gave me uh, a lot more time to focus on the things that were truly important in the production. And, and if you if you have the time, and you know, a lot of times you had you know an eight channel mixer, <laughs> so right. so you know those those tom mics go pretty quick, and the, and stereo keys go pretty quick, stuff like that. But um, when you do get to the festival dates, or you do get to the convention dates, and you got a nicer rig, and you got more inputs, and you got more time. Yeah, well, let's go after that stuff and let's do some cool effects. But what I found is strip it down to the lowest common denominator, 
really gave me uh, what I needed to be able to get into the venue and quickly hear what the system was doing and quickly get going with the band and and you know get the best I could out of a short amount of time. And so um, to me, there's a there's a real danger in saying, oh, I got to make sure I can interface my my plugins or I got this console; it won't activate. And, and so um, I. I am of the opinion that if I don't need it to do the show, I don't want it there. Correct. Yeah, I I agree with that a lot. And and from the other side of it, um, being the system engineer, uh, worked a lot of shows at Dre's in Las Vegas, which is basically a DJ club, and then they have a featured act on their bigger nights, like Migos or Chris Brown or, um, you know. Yo Gotti, I've worked a ton of them there. And what I notice is engineers that were coming to do these one-off shows and not having the plugins that they're used to having available to them because either the console was on the wrong firmware, they weren't carrying their own iLock, um, it only had the basic package, you know, and, and that kind of screws up your mix to begin with is like uh, if you're really relying on something like that to have your show be pulled together, you should kind of try to travel with it. Um, virtual soundcheck. I mean, that that saved a ton of people in a ton of different situations. Um, obviously, it's not the best representation of a live act, but it's better than not and it's not your techs because i've had situations where my techs were better players in the band <laughs> and i would do a tech check two or three songs it'd be ripping and then the band would come out and i was like what is this garbage <laughs> and then uh, opposite you know i i i had a tech one time that was i won't even say what instrument but didn't even know how to play the instrument he was just a buddy of the band that had been there for a very long time he knew how to hit a chord or or hit a drum or whatever the case may be but um i think that's more important and you're right and and bruce admitted this in the last uh podcast we did as well is like kind of go as simple as possible use it for what it's for use the tool for what it's for not just because you have it you know um if you buy the the platinum bazillion package you don't need to use all of them um and maybe know what happens to the console or to the engine or to your sound if you do use all of them. And that even goes back to another one of our podcasts with Samantha where she'll go in and take everything out and listen to it without uh, the stuff that was there before. And usually people will notice a difference. We had just talked about this before this podcast was, hey, now that you've taken all that stuff out, it doesn't sound like garbage anymore. So... You know, maybe going day to day, jumping in and doing it, use the tool for what it's for, not just because you have it. Right. And we made, before we started recording, we, we made the analogy to a drummer with a big drum set. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, like, I'm a big Carter Beaufort fan from Dave Matthews' band. I think he's just great. And I uh, really like his drumming. And he's got this big, huge kit. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I've met drummers who say, man, I really want to have a kit like Carter's. And they're saving up so they can go buy this whole thing. And I sort of think that's backwards because Carter didn't just go buy this whole thing. I think, you know, he bought a cymbal. And then he said, oh, I really want to add this texture. And he bought a, bought a little thing here. And so these things kind of evolve and grow over time because the artist is seeking a specific tool for a specific job. And I think that the majority of people who have these heavily processed mixes with a lot of plugins, I think a lot of those people got there the same way. Um, 
where they said, oh, you know, I really like, uh, you know, I think I used uh, Robert Scoville as an example. Great example. Guy knows his way around plugins, like, and his mixes sound great. And if you listen to him talk about how he arrived at, at doing these different things, he says, oh, I just, you know, I have one dB of gain reduction here on this compressor because I just like the distortion that it adds. Or I just, I like to add, a, like, you know, a little bit of color with this two preamp. Um, he's got all these little tiny pieces, and he chose all of them for a very specific reason and a very specific role that it plays in the mix. And so I really think that's the way to approach pretty much all of what we do. You know, I love to say that for me, touring is about uh, reducing variables. I want to just remove things that might go wrong. I want to get as many of those out of the equation as possible. Yeah, and, and so, I, I made the uh, comparison between if the burger's bad to begin with, the, to- <laughs> right. the, t- the topping bar doesn't matter. It doesn't matter right. what you put right. on top of it. Right. <laughs> And I think uh, years ago, I was talking to Dave Rad about this. Uh, I think the, I was, we were discussing dynamic EQ. And what Dave said is, it's a Band-Aid. He said, if, if I need EQ that changes per syllable, he goes, I need to go look at, see why that is. What are we dealing with? Is it, is it a, uh, uh, he says it's probably the wrong microphone for the artist, or are they not holding it right? You know, what, what else is happening that we feel like we need to to use this tool to get back to where we were. And so sometimes sometimes it's corrective and we need it to be corrective, and I will use it for that. I, I will use a dynamic EQ, but um, I will always ask myself before applying an EQ filter or compression or anything that I'm doing on the console, what am I correcting for or why am I doing this? You know, what's causing the thing that's making me do this? And taking that approach has really helped me kind of slim down uh, what I need and slim down what I'm doing at the desk. And I found that over time it's really made my mixes a lot better as well. For sure. I think uh, that would be another poll that we need to take is if any listeners out there have suggestions of engineers, system techs, production companies, anyone that you think would be awesome to have on the show, uh, let us know. Dave is another one of those people that I'd love to sit down and pick his brain. See, I I do the weird stuff with Dave. I want to talk about Black Flag and old carpet-wrapped cabinets in his van and maybe skateboarding, but um he he is a mastermind uh so strange about how he approaches some things but there's always a really cool method to his madness that maybe someone else hasn't even thought about and uh he would be awesome to have back on the show too as well as scove um make sure you give us an email noise signal to noise podcast at gmail.com with the number two Yep. Reach out to us. Let us know uh, who you'd like to see on the show. Also, let us know about your, your show nap situation. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, show and, nap. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we are going to be back in coming weeks with a uh, hopefully very interesting variety of guests. And I also just want to mention real quick that, uh, well, first of all, we got to say thank you to Shore, who gave us these fantastic SM7B microphones. Love uh, it. Our, we do love it, and I'm really digging the pop filter on this thing. Oh, it makes me feel like Joe Rogan. Like <laughs> that's the only thing I can think about is like I feel like Joe Rogan now, so it makes me like a little bit tougher, you, along with the mustache. You, absolutely, very mustache power. So thank you very much to Shore for sending these microphones our way, and uh, also thanks to my buddy Mike Green who performs "Break Free," which is a theme song for this podcast. Uh, you can hear more from Mike at mikegreen.bandcamp.com, and Mike's album just came out this month. So if you like what you heard. Go check it out and uh, tell them we sent you. So uh, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. 